Hello, and welcome to Beyond Prospecting, the Apper podcast, featuring thought-provoking conversations with prospect development and fundraising experts. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Data and the Donor. And we're really excited to finally get this first episode off the ground. Um, this has been a collaboration between me and Steve Grimes. It's been a little ways in the in the in the going now. Like we've been really talking about it for a while, working through a few things and getting us all together. So um, just so you guys know, this isn't like we just jumped on a Skype call and having you listen to our conversation. We've really been putting a lot of time and thought into this. And so we're really happy to share it with you, finally get this thing going. Um, and But before we completely jump into this episode, I'm going to pass this over to Steve. He's going to provide a little bit of context about kind of what to expect in this podcast from every episode. But before we provide the context, Mike, maybe you should introduce yourself fully to the, to the uh, listeners so, so, so that they know who they're listening to. See, it's good. I missed that cue. Now we know we aren't being perfect. It's going to be even better, even better now. So yeah, so my name is Michael Paulus, and I'm a data scientist at University of Southern California. And now I'll take it over to you, Steve. Great. And, you know, of course, my name is Steve Grimes. I work at Jazz Lincoln Center in uh, New York City. Um, so the idea of data and the donor came about through conversations with Mike and I because we were both super interested in the conceptual aspects of fundraising. Um, you know, so we find the conceptual aspects behind why and how donors give to nonprofits fascinating. Um, so everything from the process of a nonprofit courting donors to give to their cause and what works and doesn't work there, uh, to the donor making the conscious and sometimes subconscious decision uh, to give to a nonprofit. There is so much that is happening within those processes uh, that we thought it would be cool to sort of podcast that discuss those dynamics. Uh, however, we didn't want to create a podcast where we spoke about those mechanisms in a strictly anecdotal sort of way and wanted to root those conversations in some level of empiricism. So like the geeks that we are, Mike and I are big fans of what academic research can do towards moving those types of anecdotal conversations about our industry into something more empiric. Thus, Data and the Donor was born, um, where uh, where we take a few prominent academic studies uh, per episode and use their findings to guide our conversations towards various industry topics. Um, so our podcast will use the results of academic studies to unpack the nuances of those topics and the implications uh, for our day-to-day work. Um, um, but it's not just me and Mike. We want to have a guest on with us every episode, particularly a guest who is front-facing and, and seeing donors um, in their day-to-day work. And our, our guest for our first episode today is Sarah. Sarah, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Sarah Wells. I'm the director of major gifts at Stevens Institute for Technology in Sa- in Hoboken, New Jersey, not South Carolina, where I moved <laughs> up from a year ago. <laughs> and, and, and you know, tell us a little bit about um, uh, your general career path and your focus, and you know, what you've yeah, been doing. So- I'm a frontline fundraiser with over 11 years of experience in nonprofits. I started in the health and human services, uh, working at a children's home. I moved from there to an art museum in Columbia, South Carolina, and then to higher education, where I worked for three years at the University of South Carolina and a year of that remotely before beginning this position at Stevens just three weeks ago. Great. And, you know, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and joining us in our first episode and while we try to work out some of these kinks. And um, uh, I, I think we're, we're going to have a great conversation. Uh, so, Mike, do you want to kind of give the listeners uh, what we're kind of going to fo- focus on today? Yeah. So it's really quickly the theme for this episode. It's going to be on how previous giving will impact a potential donor's gift making decision. So we're going to look at two papers. They both have to do with donors having knowledge of other giving to 
an organization or other organizations, and then the results are how that influences or impacts a donor's decision, their gift-making decision. And so I'm going to kick it over to Steve to talk about the first paper. Great. All right. So the first paper is titled, uh, When the Relatively Poor Prosper, the Underdog Effect. Uh, this study was completed in 2018 by Alex Bradley, uh, Claire Lawrence, and Eamon Ferguson at the University of Nottingham. Uh, the question the authors are asking here is simple. Uh, what effect does the visibility of prior donations have on potential future donations? That is, if a donor knows what was given before, how, if at all, does that affect how much they are willing to give to charity? Uh, and, and, and this is where the underdog part of the study comes in, underlying their questions on the fact of the visibility of prior donations on future gifts. They're really interested in the credibility of the idea that donors prefer to give to an organization who receives less support than other charities. And for those of us who are working or have worked in larger organizations, we might have heard the mantra from a segment of our donors who sell, who say, you know, well, you're you're blank and you're a huge organization. You don't need my money or that level of gift. And I thought that this was a useful article to unpack this idea a bit more. The study was pretty comprehensive, so I'll provide an overview of their methods and results rather than getting too granular with the particulars. Uh, they broke down the study in four parts. <clears throat> The first part, the uh, first two parts, I should say, explored whether individuals donate more on average to a charity with more existing donations than another charity with less donations. Uh, for this part, they used between 130 to 150 students from the University of Nottingham and put them in various uh, lab-situated scenarios. The authors uh, then set up three jars with pennies, and each jar had varying level of pennies. Two jars were labeled with two different charities, uh, the British Heart Foundation and Cancer Research UK. The last jar was designated to show that the participant was going to give that money back to themselves. Uh, they also set up scenarios that allowed their donations to be private or known to the rest of the participants. They found that in any scenario, whether the donation was public or private, or whether the jars were labeled differently or not, participants always gave more, and most importantly, statistically significantly more, to the charity that received less support. Um, I should note that the amounts uh, that the authors were using here was no more than about four bucks. So at least within this context, they did find that donors gave more to the charity that was supported less. But the meat of the study is where they really delve in into, the, into answering why a person might want to give to an organization who generally receives less support. The authors essentially conceptualize donors who give to less supported charities as, as either underdog donors or impact donors. They argue that underdogs are those who care about supporting a less popular organization, and impact donors are those who want to have their donation uh, have an influence, have an impact. So they make changes to the last two parts of the study uh, by adding thresholds to see what effect the thresholds might um, be and whether they could tease out the answer of whether the participants give because they wanted to support the underdog charity or they want to have their donation have an impact. Uh, so using six, 166 students from the University of Nottingham, they presented a scenario where there are five schools who needed $130 uh, dollars to plant um, fruit trees. Uh, they showed how far each school was from their goal and told the participants if the school didn't make their goal, they would get no trees. Uh, 
um, the authors made it a point to present this information where none of the schools didn't appear to be better than the other or that one school needed the trees more than the other, outside of presenting how far each school was away from their goal. They found that 91 out of the 166 students chose to give to the school that was furthest away from their goal, um, and the school's second furthest away um, had the second highest support at 25 students, with the school closest to their goal with the least support. Um, and then they go on to ask uh, the participants, you know, like, why did you give uh, the schools the money that you did? Um, so the donors who gave to the schools who were furthest away from their goal essentially wanted to create an even playing field. They recognized that the other schools received um, much more than the school that received the, 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 the least, and they wanted to be a part of making sure that that school had an even playing field, an equitable playing field with the other schools. Um, the schools that there were donors who actually gave to schools uh, that were closer to their goal, and those individuals uh, argued that they wanted their their donations to have an impact, um, that they wanted their donations to be the one that brought the school above their goal. And there was a, a like a third segment uh, of individuals who um, gave to schools that uh, were above their goal, above their threshold. Um, and for those students, they reasoned that the reason why they gave them that, that money is that the fact that they received as much money as they did signals to them that the school um, was competent and was going to use their money in the best way possible. And that, you know, there was something wrong with the schools that did not receive as much money. And that's why they didn't give them um, their support. Um, you know, this was a super interesting study. Um, I, you know, I, I handpicked this one myself to kind of have as our first episode because I, I think there's just so much happening here that I, I want to believe that there is some application for nonprofits to kind of market themselves as the underdog in comparison to other charities uh, that that in itself will then go ahead and motivate donors to give to them more. Um, however, I guess in my experience um, as a prospect researcher, as a development professional, um, I, I, you know, I just don't see this being a thing. I, I don't think that donors, when they are giving um, money to an organization, particularly at the lower level, right, are thinking to themselves, well, your organization isn't as popular as another organization that looks just like you. So instead of me giving you $10, I'm going to give you $25. I, I just don't think that 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 thought process is there. I think the, the thought process at the lower level is so transactional that it wouldn't work out the way that, you know, this study is kind of brought it across, um, particularly considering this was done in like an, a lab um, situated in, in, environment. Um, Sarah, do you have any thoughts to, towards the study? You know, I agree with the concept of the underdog and particularly when the charities are the same or similar, like with schools raising money for trees or something like that. But I found that I don't think this is as applicable in the real life when people are looking across multiple different nonprofit options. Because when you're looking at the larger versus smaller or health and human service versus museums, people are 
tend to go with what means the most to them, not necessarily which organization needs the most. Um, but then, you know, that being said, I think this would work best for grassroots organizations uh, at a much smaller level. I don't see as many nonprofits really liking to compete with one another to say, I don't have as much as X, Y, and Z, so you should give to my organization. Mike, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I, I'm really um, interested in. Yeah, it's, I mean, the thing that, that when I first read this, I thought, yeah, the underdog effect. I can relate to that. Like, and I can relate to it in terms of, you know, if you watch like the NCAA like basketball tournament, and there's always like that kind of Cinderella underdog team or whatever. Um, you could think of something else, some other kind of you know, participant types, you know, sport or event like that, where you're kind of rooting for the underdog. And I can, I can understand getting behind an underdog in that way when I have nothing invested in it, when I'm just kind of like, I think, you know, it's just like, we all like that story, you know, but then it's another level for me to invest in that. And I, I think like when I was looking at it personally, I know I could identify more with that impact donor. You know, if I have, if I'm, if I'm playing the, the game of doing the experiment they're doing and I see a school that needs ten dollars to get to their their goal and i have that ten dollars like i'm more interested in getting that ten dollars to be like okay i'm the one that got you to your goal and i guess like the one thing that you know the, the study stopped short of that i'd be interested in getting your thoughts about and maybe unpacking a little more is what the motivation is kind of behind these you know if if in this controlled study so i guess there's two things we could go in either direction or we can go whatever direction you guys want to go in but i think like i think all of us feel like practically this you know in the study the most people chose this underdog path but we kind of feel like we don't really feel like that would happen in the real world. So we can kind of look at that or um, there's this whole idea of like, what's the motivation behind people giving underdog style? Like, do they think everyone's going to follow along with them? Is that why they're doing it? Like, cause otherwise like you would just feel like your gift doesn't really mean anything. Like it's not getting, it's not enough to actually get anybody anywhere. So I don't know. There's a few different directions there that I kind of thought about when I was reading this paper. Well, you know, so this is the, the thing for me, at least I, I, I think it's a dangerous game for any, uh, organization to um, communicate to your donors that you are that the organization itself is the underdog in comparison to another organization. I you know <laughs> the, the the process of of a person giving a gift is taking their hard earned money right and giving giving it to an entity knowing that they're likely not to see anything tangible back outside of the good feeling of what it is to give the gift or there's a cause or whatever the case would be right but they like they personally are, are likely not to see something tangible back right that process in itself is already just so um complicated right that you don't necessarily want to introduce any other factors, at least this is what I've heard from other um, fundraisers, that you don't want to introduce any other factors that give a donor a second chance to think about, well, wait, why should I be giving you this money if you are the underdog? Um, are, like, is there something wrong with your organization? Why haven't people giving you more money? Like, why am I the first person now kind of considering to give you this money? So I would be very careful of trying to figure out ways to market the organization as an underdog rather than maybe the cause as an underdog. Like if there's a cause that a lot of people are not particularly aware of, um, you know, and you, you know, that organization is now at the forefront of trying to, to deal with that cause. I can see how like that would work. 
in any other scenario, maybe in higher ed institutions where we're talking about maybe the smaller school, you know, the community college um, that is up against the NYUs, the Columbias, um, you know, and wants to kind of motivate their alumni base to go like, yeah, you know, you know, you came to our organi- you know, to our school, you know, now you're successful, you know, you know, we're not going to get the, the amount of donations like the NYUs, um, you know, and we need your support to, 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 to continue our mission so that we can, can um, you know, uh, produce students like yourself um, out in the world. I, I mean, I, I can see how that would work, but I, you know, I, I, logic dictates to me and, and, and historically, I just, I don't see this working for pretty much any other organization. I don't even see it working for higher education. I could see elementary, middle, high schools where, you know, it's a district and they're competing over, you know, bake sale dollars for their PTA, something like that, where there is a little bit more of a rivalry and that's more acceptable. But when you're in the realm of higher education or nonprofits, I feel like there's less of a competitive nature because we're all in this for the goodness of people's hearts and not to, not to say, you know, I'm at the bottom of the barrel. You should give to me because all of these other places have so much more money. It makes me, you know, that's a, that's not a a logical or viable reason. And particularly from a fundraiser standpoint, this isn't a long-term fundraising option. This, the implication that, was at the end of this article was that the organization should present their campaigns as deserving because it's less supportive, um, less supported than their competitors, right? But you don't always want to be at that point. The point of fundraising is to raise more dollars. So your initial message could be, we have less than our competitors, but that's only for a short period of time, theoretically. You're doing something wrong in your fundraising strategy if you are consistently at the bottom, if you're not ever moving up. And that's that's where I had more of an issue with this idea of pigeonholing yourself as an underdog because you want your strategy, whether it's annual giving or major giving, to be increasing your gifts and increasing your um your donors' interest and their impact and really focusing on the story you have, not on the, not on what you don't have. Right. And, you know, I think like, well, so you have, they did find that participants gave to organizations, to schools um, that were very close or over the threshold. Um, I think in a situation when you have, you know, uh, the choice, like in a crowdfunding website, possibly, um, where you have, you know, you see the amount of charities out there, you see their thresholds, you see their goals, right? And you have, let's say you had 50 bucks and you're like, I don't know who to give it to. There's a cause I want to give it to. I want to go ahead and donate. I see this, you know, I see this one organization who's not doing as well as the other. This is a cause that that really works. Um, Yeah, you know, I'll give my 50 bucks to them because they're, um, they're the underdog. I can I can possibly see that situation, but you know, again, I get based on just my experience and then speaking with so many people within the industry, you know, I would think, particularly at the higher level, 
right? And when you're, you're talking about five-figure gifts and above, you know, you don't want your, your donors at that level want to see that you are capable. They they don't want to hear that you're an underdog. They want to see that you that you have that you have impact that that you're going to get the job done. Um, so I I was I guess a, not not too surprised that most people within the study chose to give to the underdog. But I just I don't think it replicates what happens in real life. I think maybe in an online perspective I can see that, but I I just don't see how it, how it can do it in in, in real life. Well, and two, you know, this study was all college students, which um, is certainly millennials are going to be the largest generation in the coming years. Um, They're already considered the most generation or generous generation. um, And they're more concerned with impact than they are with anything else. So, you know, I think that this study is interesting and it has a lot of good points for crowdfunding or giving days or something where you're already set up on a competitive playing field, but it's not an individual strategy that one should put into place for your general donors. Um, And, you know, this also makes me think of, um, I was at a conference a couple of years ago and one of the speakers Um, she was talking about cultivating this donor for a major gift and he willingly gifted this, you know, very large gift to their organization. And it was much higher than they'd ever received. And they thanked him and stewarded him and everything was awesome. And then she finds out that he gave like twice as much to another organization. And she went back to him and said, you know, we really appreciate what you gave us. But may I ask why you gave that other organization that much? Why didn't you consider us for that gift? And he said, I didn't think that you would know what to do with that money. Mm. Which is a really interesting point that you also need to show that you know what to do with the gifts. And, you know, if you if you put yourself in the position where you're always saying we're not getting as much, we're not doing as well. Right you're walking a very fine line of people thinking that you're not worth it. You don't know how to spend the money or that you're not going to survive as a nonprofit. Right. Yeah. You know, and I saw that a lot at the, well, I saw the opposite at the ACLU, um, you know, where I would hear from the gift officers ever so often where donors will, you know, will say that like, yeah, you know, you're a really popular organization right now. You, you don't, you know, you don't need my level of gift. I can give that to someone else. I can, I can make an impact somewhere else because I know that you'll get people coming in no matter what. Um, well, but that's what I, they I, said at the art museum too, because those types of organizations are like luxury nonprofits. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I just, I, I, I have trouble um, getting down with everything that this, or this article is saying. It's an interesting concept though. It is. The science is there to back it, at least for small nonprofits and grassroots. But and it's it, not a long term strategy. With, with with students in Nottingham. Yeah. Um, you know. <laughs> giving giving <laughs> giving 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 to, to, to fictional uh fictional trees, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean I, I uh, agree completely. I I think it's really fascinating because uh you know, in the in the paper 
it this is the way things worked out. But I think we all had the same reaction of thinking like, well, in the real world, I just don't we don't really see it the same way. So it is gets to a, an interesting thing about like when these are um, experiments done like in a lab versus experiments done kind of in a real world setting. So I'm going to use that as a segue <laughs> to go to a, to go to our next paper, which is um we're going to go from exploring these kind of organizations or which organizations rather a donor will support based on the knowledge of other people's gifts. We're going to look at the um, how gift size knowledge, like how much someone has given, is going to impact someone's gift amount decision at the time of making the gift. If that that makes sense, if I mangle those words up too much, <laughs> uh, so I'll kind of I'm going to unpack it a little bit further. But so that's that's the 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 gist of it. And then the main the main difference here is that where that first paper dealt with something in like a lab type environment, um, a controlled you know experimental environment, this is just using real world data. Um, so. Here's the thing. So to set up the second paper for you, the easiest way is just to have you, the listener, just kind of imagine yourself going to an online donation form, like a crowdfunding form or any kind of online donation form. And you see a scrolling list of all the donations that were made before you in chronological order on some kind of a side panel. Um, so this this paper, um, it has to do with like with Japan Giving, which is a branch and affiliate of Just Giving. So I'm not sure if they still have this type of format or not. But if you were to go to the webpage, you know, we could maybe see that uh, you would you would see this kind of this kind of display, this kind of user experience or design. So the the question is, well, you, what you want to be thinking about yourself right now is like, how do you think this would impact your gift amount decision? So if you see a whole bunch of gifts coming at twenty dollar level, how is that going to make you feel about the gift that you're going to make? Are you going to get twenty dollars? And what is the, like the amount of these twenty dollar gifts that you see on the side? How much is that going to? You know, if there's more of them or less of them, how? more or less likely are you to give at that level? So this is the kind of the question we want to be thinking about. So the title of his article is Majority Size and Conformity Behavior and Charitable Giving, Field Evidence from a Donation-Based Crowdfunding Platform in Japan. And it was published by, it's published in October of 2018 in the Journal of Economic Psychology. And the research was completed by Shusaki Susaki in uh, Kyoto University's Graduate School of Economics. So, Similar to what Steve said last time, um, I'm just going to do a, a quick explanation, like I kind of already started to do. So the work here is looking at 9,000, 9, 989 real donations made on the Japan Giving um, platform. So the researcher was able to get their hands on a real data set of real donations. And the topic of interest here that's being explored is, is how this research in conformity is like... I'm sorry, let me start that over again. The topic of interest being explored in this research is, is, is conformity, right? So the way that this was measured is by taking every gift and looking at the modal amount from one to five lagging gifts, which would be the ones displayed for the donor to see. So the analysis did show that when the two most recent donations were identical, a subsequent donor was likely to match that last gift. And um, this likelihood increased as the number of the most recent continuous modal amounts um, increased. And so modal amount obviously is meaning the most common gift amount. Um, that you see over there. So um, if you reference this paper later, if you go and take a look at the paper, you'll see there's a lot of like fairly complex statistics being used, but that's not really, you know, we want to keep everything really simple here. We want to kind of disentangle it and, and take, you know, really take the insights out of the paper and leave all that kind of stuff behind. I mean, if you're really interested in that, it's there for you to, to get involved in for sure. But basically the way to think about this again is you see two $20 gifts in a row. Um, then you're likely to choose $20. If you see five $20 gifts in a row, you're even more likely to give it that amount. But it should be noted that um, when the gift size was between $1 and $5, the likelihood was at its highest, and it decreased when its range was up to $5 and 
though it was still statistically significant. Um, but as you, as you kept going more and more, um, as the amount of this kind of like modal amount would rise, then the likelihood that someone would follow the leader would decrease. So that's something to keep in mind as we go forward. Okay, so my last bit here. As the author suggests, in this format of the study, there's, uh, there's not very much utility, right? So um, these, you look at this, this is completely controlled by the donor. The, the organization has no real say in it because it's just showing the donations that came in and we, don't, you know, we can't control that whatsoever. So um, I'm trying to look at this thing. I'm trying to think, how could we... You know, we can usually influence the design of our giving platforms. Um, either directly or indirectly, either we have access to it. If it's were some things, some vendor products, we could actually get right in there and change it. Or indirectly, or we can work with our IT staff or somebody to make some changes. So a lot of times we do have some input on the way that these things display. And, and they do have some kind of functionality and utility that we can manipulate and, and uh, experiment with. So in particular, I can imagine only displaying gifts over a certain threshold in the recent gift section, which might incentivize giving at a level um, for that recognition. Um, which is, you know, outside the scope of this paper, but it also is would prompt more gifts at that level due to this kind of conformity behavior. So, so I think there's a couple of things to kind of get the conversation started. I mean, I think the main thing is to think about the kind of constraints. So I think if we leave it wide open, then there's a risk um, of someone giving at kind of a really low level and everybody following the leader and giving at that low level. So we want to kind of control for that. But there's other, there's like a, an upper bound constraint too, or if, if if for some reason there were gifts coming in at these really high levels, then people there's this like free rider problem of people thinking, oh well, someone's already giving a lot, so I don't, I don't have to give anything, you know. So somehow we have to find that kind of sweet. It seems like what they're suggesting is there's a sweet spot where we could really get people who would ordinarily give like not as much to give a little bit more. And since we're talking about this kind of level, this kind of annual giving level or whatever, that could you know have a big a big impact. So I think that's something to kind of start the conversation about and kick it over to Sarah to kind of think about that entry point of just kind of what we're, how we think strategically about the kind of giving levels, what we ask people to give at and um, yeah, ways we can kind of control people see to kind of incentivize people to give at the level we want them to give at. You know, I found this paper really interesting and the psychology behind donor giving to be pretty spot on with what I've seen in terms of donors giving um, the conformity of donors giving um, what I think is most important when it comes to something like this, or not most important, maybe just like top five important, uh, the minimum giving level that's suggested on the giving platform, because I think that plays a huge part in how much someone gives and what more people are giving on a regular basis. So if your minimum giving level on your platform is a suggested donation of $25 and it goes up from there, like 25, 50, 100, et cetera. And you see most people on the right giving $25, then it could be that that's the easiest way for them to give. And, you know, they're clicking through. It's not as much the conformity as it is the ease of giving. If they're giving more than that, then you would see, and people are consistently giving $50 then the conformity would, you know, really be playing a part and people would be seeing what someone else is giving and continue to give at that level. So I think that's an area where this article didn't touch on as much that I think would be interesting to pursue and interesting for a nonprofit to do their own A-B testing of 
what what's actually motivating their own donors. Is it how much people are giving, what other people are giving, or is it the ease of giving? As we know, the least amount of clicks equals the most amount of follow through on donations. Um, and to chest and see, because maybe you could raise that level. Maybe you could make your minimum gift $50 and you're banking on the ease of giving and the conformity and you're getting more donations then. Where if you lowered it to 10, you run the risk of 10 being the conformed gift. You know what I mean? Like that would be an interesting uh, test to see if that minimum level can actually increase your gifts and rather than hoping that people will give at a higher level and that they'll continue, other people will see that and say, yeah, I want to give that much too. And some rando isn't going to come in and give $500 and mess up the whole process. And everyone's like, whoa, I can only, you know, I only have to give five now because that guy's got it covered. Right. Right. You know, and and I think part of, the the problem with the study, I don't think they mentioned it at all, was this exact point of like, you know, you want to definitely minimize as much noise as humanly possible if you were to apply something like this. So it's it probably is best to make sure that, you know, if a charity is to apply this, that they definitely give a minimum, right? Because again, this is another thought that or doubt even that comes into the donor and you know once they're seeing oh i see 20 bucks i see 20 bucks i see 20 bucks i wonder if it's okay to give 10 right like you like you just you want to take away as many opportunities and it sounds horrible like it sounds bad right but like you want to <laughs> take away as many opportunities as you possibly can for the donor to think you know independently of themselves you want to guide them as humanly possible well, that's how into advertising the, the, works the with food and stuff yeah. i mean you're doing right, it's all right. doing the same thing and the way people think what's the easiest way to do this and what's right. the easiest way to get people to actually continue clicking right. through your website it's to make everything right. easy to read and easy to do right you know so like definitely one of the things that i would have liked to see them discuss here is the inclusion of the threshold and, you know, tying it back to um, the last study with, you know, you're either dealing with people who are underdog donors or impact donors. You know, I wonder what would happen if they were to include a threshold, right? And then donors see that, you know, the charity that is the furthest away from their threshold and they see that everyone's just giving five bucks like at what point, like what happens then with, with, with that donor? And when they're looking at that, are they then looking at it and going, well, you know, you're furthest away from your threshold. You're only getting five bucks. I mean, I, I don't see a reason now to give you, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, you know, I, cause everyone else seems to either not give you anything or give you something really low, you know? And I, and I think if anything, this study is really in a, kind of an indictment of the, of the first study, because, you know, the more information you give your donors about how good or bad you're doing as it relates to your campaign goal, right? Oh, I should say how bad you're doing in, in, in relation to your campaign goal. I, I, like, again, my gut feeling is to feel that, like, the donor will see that and go, oh, you, you know, you've only made 10% of your goal. Yeah, sure. Take my money, please. But like, I just, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. So I'd be interested in seeing because another study kind of uh, do this and then add, 
you know, what is the effect of a threshold? I do like the idea, though, in this, particularly because it's real data and they're real donors, the thought of controlling the donations you're seeing scroll by, you know, maybe filtering it so that because, you know, every fundraiser, if you have an online platform and you're doing a day of giving or something like that, everyone's watching it like a hawk and refreshing and keeping up with it. So if you can filter and you see that most people are giving at $100 or that you're getting a handful of them, maybe showing those gifts to try and help the conformity, try and help people, encourage them to give that rather than um, showing every single gift that pops up. Yeah, I would love to see this experiment redone with that type of uh, that type of control or that type of like, you know, change because I, it's not that you wouldn't accept it. It's not that you're saying if someone couldn't get five dollars, but you just make it clear like only gifts over whatever twenty or fifty dollars are going to show up. Yeah. So you know, and you put that somewhere. It doesn't have to be in a really prominent place, but you do put you make it clear though. And then uh, and then on the side in the scroll, people come onto the platform. All they, all they see are these gifts of like they don't see the five dollar gift. They don't see a ten dollar gift. They see the twenty dollar. 20, 20, 20, 20, 20. Okay, I'm going to give 20. Or I see 50, 50, 50, 50. Okay, I'm going to give 50. You know, you kind of find that sweet spot where you're really going to get people, yeah, where it's just, it's convenient and it's that you're, you're leveraging the convenience, you're leveraging the, con- the conformity type impulse, but you're getting people to kind of stretch a little bit more than they would have otherwise. So they come in, they see five, they get five, they feel happy, they feel like they did what they're, you know, whatever else did, they, you know, and they're good to go. Um, yeah, yeah. But no, yeah, no. I feel like if you, if you tell people, hey, let's give a little bit more, then, you know, you might be able to get a little bit more. So, Well, right, yeah, and right, that's, right. I think, where it's really important to have that minimum gift amount where it wouldn't be $5 as, you know, the auto gift uh, that's that your platform, where your platform set, but rather 25 or 50 or something to help stretch donors. All right. And so, you know, I, I actually have uh, two, two last points here. You know, at reading the study, I... Um, uh, I was wondering then, you know, because I, I, I do a decent amount of, of data um, analytics for uh, my current uh, organization, and I never thought of creating a derived variable um, for donors who give odd amounts, right, who give outside of the natural giving amount. You know, so if the natural giving amount is 100 bucks, you know, why is this dude over here giving one hundred and thirteen dollars? Like, what, what? What's his deal, right? You know, like, what, what, like, and then is there anything that comes along with a donor like that, right? I would love, actually, love to see a sto- uh, um, an article that um, unpacks that, and if there's anything there, maybe I'll publish something myself. Um, <laughs> but you know, you know, so for Sarah, you know, I, I have a, a question for you. Then, like, okay, so again, we're talking here at the lower level, right? We're talking at you know, for most places, the annual giving level. Um, you know, what's your thought process on this as it relates to not the influence of the crowd and what they give, but the influence of the donor, say, at the major giving level, right? That you're you're, you're talking to a donor, you're trying to bring them in, and, um, you know, you want to kind of use this approach of, like, the crowd is going to push this person over the he- edge to, to kind of come into our organization. But I don't want to kind of phrase it as the crowd. I want to phrase it as somebody really influential who was just like you gave this amount. Like, is that even something that you would even talk about when you're having a discussion with a donor in terms of that giving giving amount? Uh, you know, I think yes and no. I think it 
I think it relies a lot on who the donor is, what their connections are, and you know, obviously uh, what you're asking for. I've noticed since being at Stevens they, um, that we do a lot of reunion giving and where someone might say, I have pledged to do a legacy gift for Stevens in the amount of $25,000. And I'm asking 10 of my classmates from, you know, reunion year 1969, this is our reunion year. I'm asking you to pledge to do the same. And they're challenging, not saying I won't give this amount, but they're setting forth a challenge. And then the fundraiser can then use that and say, this other person in your class is doing this. We'd love for you to consider Mm. doing the same or more, whatever you're comfortable with. That can certainly work. I don't know how well it works between strangers um, because, you know, there's, yeah, competitive nature certainly plays, but it's a particular kind of donor who wants that recognition as opposed to the philanthropy, because there's a little, you know, there are a couple types of major gift donors. A lot of them are doing it for the love and the passion and the inspiration and the impact. And there are some who are doing it for the recognition and, you know, their family name or their business name or the benefits or whatever. And that's where you as a major gift officer have to play to their interests and to what they want to give. And if you have the challenge opportunities, then you use them. And if the person doesn't respond to that, you know, then you don't. And that's, that's kind of where, that's a lot of where major gifts and annual gifts differ is that it's not transactional. It's relationship giving. Right. And, no, absolutely. But you want to build from transactional giving from these people who are stretching and increasing and using that. And you want to see the people who have been giving five, 10, 15 years or at least or, you know, given a second year in a row and use that to build a relationship and to go somewhere with it. And so all of this information between the underdog and the conformity, all of it plays into annual giving and all of it builds up to major giving and all of it leads to what I do and where we want to have the transformational gifts to, you know, build the bulk of our fundraising. Well, great points. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's all the time we have for this episode. Um, I, you know, thank you so much for uh, joining us and listening to our conversation. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, guys. This has been awesome. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, we want to be able to provide you guys the articles. Um, so we're happy to share our copies. Um, we've set up an, an email address uh, for the podcast. It is uh, the title of the podcast at Gmail. So data and the donor at Gmail. Um, uh, we uh, expect to have our next podcast uh, in the next few weeks or so. Uh, we have some topics in mind. Um, but if there's anything that you think is super interesting to discuss, um, again, you can go ahead and email us again at data at the donor um, at Gmail um, and, and give us some ideas about some things that we, we may want to kind of have a discussion with. And, and if you have any thoughts about 
um, our conversation, you disagree, you agree, um, please feel free again to let us know. Uh, we'll be happy to read some comments on the next podcast and continue on the conversation. You know, we're, we're big fans of sharing information and, and, and learning together. So, you know, we hope that this podcast kind of uh, accomplishes that. Again, everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Prospecting, the APRA podcast. To discover all that APRA has to offer, visit aprahome.org. For links to content featured in this episode, check out the show notes. If you like the show and want to help others find us, please subscribe to and rate us on iTunes. Until next time.